Thanks for joining us on the Hope Podcast. Hope Community Church exists to love people where they are and help them grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. By pursuing this relationship together, we can change the world. We have multiple locations, including an online service found at gethope.tv. If you're not from the greater Raleigh-Durham area in North Carolina or near our Agape campus in Haiti, we'd love to still have you be a part of what Hope is up to through our online services. If you do live in our physical area, go to our website at gethope.net to check out where our campuses are located and our service times. Please like and share this with your friends or family. We are so glad you stopped by. Well, welcome those of you joining us at one of our physical campuses and online and those of you in the room. Uh, have you guys seen these how it started, how it's going pictures on social media? Yes, seen some of them. I went on like a rabbit hole a few weeks ago. I actually brought some with me. You can put the first one up. Some of them are really heartwarming. Look at that. That's how it started on the left, how it's going. They got married. That's not heartwarming. Go to the next one. This one's, oh, look at that. Oh, poor puppy. Got adopted. Look at him now. That one's a little funny. <laughs> that's how it started. That's how it's going now. So she kept the dog. She kept the dog. Now, you know, I had to add this one. How it started, how it's going. Yep. Season one to season 22, from a lowly chef to the mayor of uh, Flavortown, Guy Fieri. By the way, if you say a Guy Fieri, you are not a true fan. It's Guy Fieri. If you know, you know. Well, I start with those pictures, how it started and how it's going, because as we enter the Christmas season, there's this temptation, I think, in all of us to say, oh, it's just another Christmas. There's this temptation to look back at something that God did all those years ago and say, well, it's cute and it's nice and there was a baby and there was a manger, but that's about it. Just to look back at little eight pound, six ounce, newborn baby, Jesus didn't even know a word yet, just an infant so cuddly and yet omnipotent. And we look back at the sheep and we look back at the manger and we just leave it at that. Uh, we look at how it started and we forget to dwell and rejoice in and remember how it's going. So I think, I think at Christmas, especially as Christians, there's a danger of memorializing something that happened in the past that was meant to revolutionize the present. Because Christmas wasn't an end in and of itself. It was a beginning. It was the start of something that would turn the world upside down. The start of something that you and I are still experiencing the effects of even today. So this week and next week, I just want us to be reminded of not what God did, but what he started. And to kind of open our, way, our eyes to the ways that what happened on that first Christmas still has the power to transform our lives today. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn with me to the book of John, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the fourth gospel. And John has my favorite rendition of the Christmas story. Now, when people read the Christmas story, they usually read out of, Marth, uh, out of Matthew and Luke. Um, that's where we get the manger. That's where we get the wise men. That's where we get the stars. Uh, but my heart's just been drawn to the way that John writes about that first Christmas. Uh, whereas Matthew and Luke write about the Christmas story kind of like journalists, uh, John writes about that first Christmas as an artist, as a poet. Look at how he describes that first Christmas. He says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And there's this little verse about John, but then he moves on to verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the only God, his son, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. 
Isn't that a beautiful telling of the Christmas story? John takes all the minor details out of the way, and he just says, when you boil it right down, this is what that first Christmas really was. It was the Word of God, the exact representation of God, the God that has existed for all of eternity, taking on human skin and dwelling with us. It's Jesus in all of his glory moving into the neighborhood. And John says that when Jesus moved into the neighborhood, he brought something earth-shattering and history-changing with him. He uses the word five times. When Jesus came down that first Christmas, he brought with him grace. He brought the great light of his grace to illuminate a dark world. It says, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. And that one little phrase, grace upon grace, has just stuck out to me the past few weeks. In the Greek, it's a weird little phrase. It literally means in the Greek, grace on top of grace with grace underneath and like grace all around it, in front of and behind of and around grace. So it's like, uh, this is how deep I go theologically. You ever buy the fancy bread at the grocery store and you like unwrap it and it's still not unwrapped, like surprise, there's another wrapper, right? It's like that. Or it's like uh, baby bell cheese. You guys ever get that? You got little toddlers? Yeah, it's the cheese so nice they wrapped it twice, right? You wrap it and surprise, there's another wrapper. I'm super deep theologically, I know. But in the Greek, that's what it's saying. If Jesus brought with him grace, if you were to move that grace aside, surprise, there's more grace. And if you were to move that grace aside, surprise, there's even more grace. And so John's saying that first Christmas, Jesus kind of unleashed this ocean of grace where wave after wave after wave kind of begin washing over the world. And that little verse has just caught my attention like never before the past few weeks because I think if there is something that the world needs now more than ever, it's grace. I mean, I don't know if you know this or not, but you can just look around at our world just turn on some social media, just watch some people sitting in traffic and you will find grace is very, very rare commodity. In fact, the opposite is more commonplace, ungrace. You know, words of rudeness and of hate that we see on social media, just anger. In a world where, where churches are supposed to be the source of hope, many churches still say you, you gotta clean up your act. You gotta dress in a certain way and talk in a certain way before you're gonna be accepted. Or we have a secular world now that, that says you have to believe in certain cultural assumptions. You have to devote yourself to certain causes. You have to vote or ally yourself with certain political parties on either side in order to be accepted, in order to be deemed worthy, in order uh, to be loved. Philip Yancey writes this. He says, we live in an atmosphere choked with the fumes of ungrace. Grace comes from the outside as a gift and not an achievement. How easily it vanishes from our dog-eat-dog, survival-of-the-fittest, look-out-for-number-one world. So what John's saying is that 2,000 years ago, God looked over this dark world, and he said, I know exactly what they need, and it's grace. And we still find ourselves in desperate need of that grace even today. But this grace that Jesus unleashed on the world 2,000 years ago, the more I've thought about it, the more I really believe it is incredibly unnatural to us. It's like otherworldly. Like it's not our default setting. Our natural tendency actually is to run after systems or to run after a lifestyle of ungrace or that's devoid of grace. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this before. We're going to do a little philosophy lesson, okay? You guys going to hang with me for five minutes? So I don't know if you ever thought about this before, but there really are only two approaches to life. 
There's really only two kind of worldviews that mankind has been able to come up with. I know it seems like there's a thousand different ways to live life and a thousand different religions and a thousand different worldviews. But when you boil everything down, there really are only two views of how life works. Uh, the first view a lot of us are familiar with because you're in a church building or you're tuning in online or maybe you have some history with religion. But the first view is what I would call moralism. Everyone say moralism. Good, good class. Yes, moralism. You can call it legalism. You can call it religion. But what moralism says is in order to find happiness, in order to find joy, in order to find salvation, you have to be a good person. You got to obey the rules. So moralism says if I obey God or my conscience or this political party or this group of people, then I'll be accepted. Then I'll be loved. Then I'll be worthy. Then I'll be happy. So you have this certain standard in your life and your job is to measure up to it. And when you do measure up, when you are good enough, then God or this group of people, they'll accept you, they'll bless you, you'll be happy, you'll have joy. So moralism says, if I follow the rules and don't mess up, that's how I found salvation. That's how I find joy. Now this is kind of a old school approach, I know. Some of the millennials are like, people really live that way? We used to, yes. I think of kind of the, the token of this is like, think about your grandparents maybe, or my great-grandmother was just like this. Her name was Gussie Campbell. We called her Nanny, uh, but she's from Alabama. And she knew Jesus and she understood his grace, but she was kind of legalistic. She grew up in that kind of tradition. So she went to church every single time the doors were open and you couldn't laugh in church. I remember they laughed one time in church and she got up and left because that was against the rules, right? So she was like, don't drink, don't chew, don't hang out with people that do, except she chewed. She chewed tobacco. I'm dead serious. If you're from the South, this might be normal. But my 90-year-old great-grandmother dipped snuff, okay? But she did it in secret, like a good moralist. So the whole family knew that when you went to go see Nanny, you had to knock on the door and say, Nanny, I'm here. And she'd say, hold on, sweetie. And she'd take a medicine bottle and she'd get the snuff out. And then she'd wipe her mouth and she'd say, come in, sweetie, as if nothing happened, right? She hid it, okay? But that, that's kind of that's my idea of what this is. And now it's not just, it's not just religious people either. I think, I think politics or certain movements in the world have become a type of religion in and of themselves, right? But notice, there's absolutely no grace in that sort of lifestyle because if you mess up, if you fail, if you don't measure up, you're out. It's game over, you're out of the club. And we can see this in our cancel culture, right? And the road of moralism, it leads to some really unhappy places. If you follow this sort of life approach where you have to obey the rules in order to find joy or salvation, it's either going to lead you to become an extremely prideful and judgmental person because you happen to be type A and you can follow those rules and you got some self-discipline or you're really good at hiding it like nanny with her snuff, right? You're really good at, at hiding it from others or it's going to lead you to a life that's just racked with guilt and shame because you can't measure up. All right. Graceless. That's the first approach to life. It's moralism and there's no room for grace. The second most common approach to life outside of the church is what I call relativism. Everyone say relativism. Philosophy lesson will be over soon, okay? Hang with me. Relativism says, unlike moralism that says following the rules will bring you happiness and joy and salvation, relativism says the opposite. Oh, no, no, no. Happiness and freedom are found by breaking all the rules. So the key to life is to throw away tradition. 
to throw away the rules and the regulations. Every single person needs to discover what makes them personally happy and then pursue that no matter if it breaks rules or not. So happiness is really a process of self-discovery. The relativist says, I'm the only one who can decide what's right and wrong for me, and I'm going to live as I want, and I'm going to find my true happiness that way. So think of the hippies in the 60s or the hipsters of my generation, right? Happiness comes from breaking the rules. Joy and foundation are found away from God. And what I've found just through talking with people through all these years of ministry is that many of those folks started off over here as moralists. They were raised in the church or they tried religion and they couldn't have their good works outweigh their bad works. There was no joy. So they said, okay, I'm going to step away from church a little bit. I'm going to put down the Bible. I'm going to put down the rules and regulations and I'm going to search for joy and happiness over here away from that stuff. And in this system also, there is absolutely no grace because all of the pressure and all of the burden for happiness and joy and purpose and meaning in life, it's on you. You have to find your own joy. You have to find your own meaning. You have to find your own purpose. And what this group eventually finds is that's usually a hopeless pursuit. You never quite find what you're looking for. And almost every single religion and every way of life will fall into one of these two categories, moralism or relativism, because this is all that we as human beings have ever been able to come up with. Almost every single person lives according to one of these two approaches. But when Jesus came down that first Christmas 2,000 years ago, he exploded these categories. When he looked at that world 2,000 years ago, that first Christmas, he kind of looked down and said, oh, you guys don't know, there's a better way. There's a way out of your shame and your guilt, and there's a way out of your hopeless pursuit. And when he walked this earth, he hit both of these approaches head on during his ministry here on earth. To the relativist, uh, to the relativist he said, try as you might, you're never going to find happiness and joy and meaning and salvation away from God because he's kind of the source of that. <laughs> he's the only source of true joy. And so ironically, the further you go away from that source in search of that joy, the further you're going away from the very thing that you're searching for. Jesus said crazy things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father or finds salvation or finds joy apart from me. He said, I have come so that you can have life and life to the full because without it, without me, you can't have it. He said, I have spoken these things to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Jesus said, hey, relativist, the joy that you're looking for, it's only found in me. And to the moralist, the rule followers over here, Jesus said, try as you might, but you can never be good enough to earn the salvation that you're searching for. He said, you can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can't fix yourself. You can't be good or righteous or holy enough. And this is the thing that made the Pharisees so incredibly angry that they eventually killed him, right? He said, you might think that you're a really good person, but that's just because you're comparing yourself with other human beings that are broken and sinful. That's not the standard. The standard is the holiness of God. And when that's your standard, you're always going to fall short. He said, okay, you might not commit adultery, but I say do not lust. He said, I don't commit murder. But Jesus said, well, don't even get angry, right? He actually says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, if you want a good standard, here's the standard you should measure yourself to. It's perfection. If you want to earn salvation, it's perfection. And that's a standard that you're never going to meet. 
Your good works will never outweigh your bad works. It's a hopeless pursuit. And Jesus showed us when he was on earth that both of these approaches end up in the exact same place. The end result of both of these lifestyles is emptiness and hopelessness. And as I look back at my life, um, if I were honest, I'd have to say that I, I personally spent a little bit of time in both camps. I actually pulled out an old college journal recently. And uh, I was reading through some of my journal writings. I was an interesting guy back then. But uh, I, I was lucky enough to grow up in a Christian household. So we, um, especially in middle school and high school, we were in church every time the doors were open. If you're from the South, you know what that means. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Tuesday night visitation. Anybody do that? We used to knock on doors and invite people to church. And then we would have Wednesday night as well. And I'm thankful for that. I like that. But around the time that I started hitting middle school and high school, I'm like, man, it's getting a little hard to obey all these rules. Because <laughs> I'm learning about more rules and I'm learning about that I have more sin as well. And I didn't know it at the time, but, that, but that's what I thought Christianity was. Making my, my good works outweigh my bad works. And I tried for years in middle school and high school, even early in college, um, to try to balance the scales, but I always kind of came up short. And I read this journal writing a, a few weeks ago, my sophomore year of college at a Christian school where I went to tons and tons of church services. I actually wrote this. All these preachers in suits are telling me all these things I'm supposed to do. Don't they know I don't have the power to do them? <laughs> right? And it was two steps forward and 17 steps back. And there was all the shame and all this guilt. And actually looking back at my college career, it was shortly after that that I tried a different way. I kind of walked away from church for a little while. I walked away from the Bible. And my junior year in college, I kind of dove into the deep end of relativism. Because right? I didn't find much joy or happiness over here, so I tried to find it away from God. And you know my story, drugs, alcohol, relationships, like you name it, I tried it. By the grace of God, that only lasted about a year. And actually, I read another journal um, around that time. And I, I wrote this. I thought I'd be happier this way. I thought I'd find some joy. Why am I so empty? Right? So I tried this road, and it didn't work. I tried this road. It didn't work. They both ended up in a dead end. And it wasn't until I was 21 years old, and I was sitting across from an older, wiser Christian that had known me for years. And I've told this story a lot still like it. But I was sitting down next to him, and he poked me in the chest, and he said, your problem is you don't believe that Jesus loves you as you are. And I remember just breaking down, like he touched something so deep in my heart. And for the first time, I think, a wave of grace just, just washed over me. <laughs> and my life has been changed ever since then. See, when Jesus looked at this earth 2,000 years ago, before that first Christmas, he looked down on two groups of people. One group that was always striving and always failing, and filled with guilt and filled with shame, and one group that was always searching and never finding, just empty and kind of hopeless. And in the most amazing act in human history, he came down to us. When we couldn't find a substitute for him, and when we couldn't be good enough to make it up to him, he came down to us. It says Galatians 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. 
And because you are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. See, that first Christmas, God said the very thing that every single person is searching for and striving for, whether by climbing up the ladder of moralism or down and away the ladder of relativism, it's me. It's a relationship with me. And in this shocking act of grace that still reverberates today, God came down in the form of Jesus and offered anyone and everyone what they truly needed, himself, himself. And we could not imagine this in our wildest dreams, the very thing that we desperately need, it doesn't have to be found and it doesn't have to be earned. It's a free gift that anyone and everyone can just open their hands and receive. I mean, this is a completely different way of seeing life. This is the shocking grace of Jesus. What we learn later in the Bible is that this grace, it's free, but it does call for a response. Jesus calls us to respond to that grace, and that response can be a little bit uncomfortable. <laughs> if you're over here in this camp, in the moralist camp, trying to earn your salvation, you have to lay down your pride. You have to come to the conclusion and just say, I can't do it. You have to say, I'm not, I'm not disciplined enough or as able as I thought. You have to admit that you need help and you gotta turn away from your own efforts and turn towards the source of that grace. But when you do that, when you do that, that's when you'll get your first taste of freedom. It's like this weight and this burden of you being in control of your destiny, you having to earn that salvation and that love. It all falls down. And there's this relief that Jesus did and didn't do on my behalf, that God treats me based on what his son did. And I don't know if you've ever been in the room uh, when a moralist um, comes to know that sort of grace, but it's amazing. Um, I actually have a video to show you in a second. We, um, before we planted the church in, in uh, 2014, we moved into an apartment in Durham. And uh, the day that we moved in, this couple was heading out to go to the hospital to give birth to their second child. Well, when they came back, we gave them some meals and stuff. Their name is Paige and Derek. They have two beautiful kids. Um, the kid they actually had, it's a miracle story. I'll save that for a later sermon. Um, but we formed a relationship with them way back in 2014. And um, Paige um, is the mom and the wife. And Paige grew up in a Catholic um, upbringing, and I don't know if you know about Catholicism. Actually, half of you are like relapsed Catholics, so you know. Catholicism, there's a lot of rules and regulations, a lot of do's and don't do's. Well, later in life, she actually converted to Mormonism and married a Mormon man as well. Now, Catholicism is one thing, but Mormonism adds a whole much more on top of it. And uh, so this is our first Mormon friend, but we form a relationship with him, and we get to talking. And, and you can kind of see, man, Paige was just this, she wanted to be a good person, and she was. But there was just this weight, this pressure. I remember she drove into the parking lot one time, and uh, she had a Starbucks coffee cup in her, uh, and Mormons aren't allowed to drink caffeine, so she threw a T-shirt over to kind of hide it from us, right? There was this, like, this pressure. Anyway, we moved to Asheville and planted the church, and we stayed in touch with them for the past seven years, and the Spirit began to move in Paige about two years ago. And she would send some texts, and we would pray for her, and she sends some emails. I'm, I'm doubting some stuff about Mormonism. 
And finally, she texted Jenny and said, I'm thinking about leaving the Mormon church. And so she sent one last email, and it had all these questions about Mormonism. What does Christianity say? And I said, Paige, I'm going to answer you very, very clearly, but I'm also going to plead with you. Would you leave Mormonism, and would you run into the arms of Jesus? And she texted us a few weeks ago and said, I'm a Christian now. I'm getting baptized. And uh, so she got baptized last Sunday, and she sent us a video of it. And I want you to hear it. I want you to see it. She talks very, very quickly. It's about a two-minute video. Um, it's not because she's nervous. She talks that fast in real life. But beautiful words of someone who was trapped in moralism, trying to earn it, found the grace in Jesus. So you can play that. So I was raised Catholic in New York, but didn't attend church super regularly growing up. But I thought that um, I was taught to fear God and do good, and I was really motivated by the idea of doing good and being a good person. In exchange, I wouldn't go to heck when I die. Um, in high school, my family was pretty broken, and I wasn't living at home for a lot of different reasons my last year of high school, and had some friends who were members of a very popular Utah church. And I was really motivated by this idea that if I do all the right things and follow a strict set of rules, that I'll receive all these blessings and my life would be better and I wouldn't have to go through some of the problems that my parents went through. And I thought that these rules and commandments would save and protect me from sin and that if I just held on to that, I would have a good life. And yes, my life got better. I met my husband, we had our kids, hey Kyle. Um, <laughs> and um, we graduated college and lived this like super normal human life, void of a lot of the pain and experiences that I had to deal with growing up. Um, and I kept checking all these boxes and living all these commandments year after year and was accepted by all these people in our neighborhood and community and had these callings that I was able to do at church and um, having that external validation uh, for my works was super motivating to me and as a people pleaser I loved that I was really good at being able to do something, get validation and then link that idea back to this idea that what, what I'm doing is um, well enough to, be, to get me saved or go to heaven. Um, and eventually, a couple years ago, all that crumbled pretty hard and fast for me as I began to realize that the doctrine attached to these commandments didn't make sense to me anymore, and that it wasn't God's will for me either. Um, it took a long time for me to follow what the Spirit was telling me to do, though, because I knew that following God's will for my life was going to cause a lot of pain and separation from my old church and community, and it's still pain that's very fresh and that I'm still working through. But every time I've had doubts or wanted to chase that approval from other people, um, and get that validation from my old community. God's voice has spoken louder to me each time and has been um, the driving force that has kept me moving in this direction. Um, I'm grateful that through all the pain that I've had to go through to get to this moment, that God's voice has been able to speak to me the loudest. I'm grateful God's voice was louder than my neighborhood or my old community or family and friends that might not fully understand what I'm doing. But I truly know that there's nothing more that I can ever do in this life to earn God's love in the next. And I'm excited to get baptized and publicly show that my faith in my Savior and what he has done for me is enough. And that I can rest in his grace and celebrate and honor that the rest of my life. It was a long process, I and mean, it cost her some stuff. 
Um, but she found that grace, <clears throat> and she responded to it. So that's the response if you're trying to earn your salvation. To the relativists, you also have to respond. You have to lay down your pride as well. The pride of thinking that you know best how to live life. The pride of thinking that you can provide for yourself the joy that only God can. And you have to admit that you've been walking away from the very thing that you've been looking for. And you also have to turn and go towards the source. And that can be super uncomfortable because where the moralists, when they turn to the Father, they just are looking at a Father that they've disappointed. But for those of us that have strayed, when we turn, we're looking at the face of a Father who we have disrespected, we've pushed away, we've written off, whose rules and regulations we've broken and didn't even care. And there's always this thought, won't, won't he be angry? Won't he be mad? I mean, I may want to run to him, but does he want anything to do with me? And the answer is yes. <laughs> That's what the first Christmas was. God didn't wait for us to run to him. He ran to us. The Bible says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Just like you can't be good enough to qualify for it, you also can't be too bad to disqualify yourself from it. There was no one that's out of reach of his grace. When Jesus walked this earth, he welcomed the sinners and the prostitutes and the thieves and the tax collectors and the prodigal sons and the murderers and the racists and the addicts and the mess ups and the failures. The father welcomed all of them home. Christmas is good news of great joy for all people. See, his grace is not just offered to those who don't deserve it, but also to those who deserve the exact opposite. No one is too far gone. No one is beyond the reach of his mercy. Remember how John said Jesus was full of grace? If you're doubting it, hear this tonight. There is more grace in Jesus than there is sin in you. And that will always be the case. And the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. So my simple question for you this Christmas season is, do you know that grace? Have you received it? Have you received it? There's no system. There's no do's or don't do's that'll get you what you need. You don't need a system. You need a savior and you have one. And there's no need to search. You're never gonna find it out here. You're only gonna find it at the heart of the Father. You need to lay down your searching and just surrender. But this is the grace that Jesus unleashed all those 2,000 years ago and the grace that turned the world upside down and continues to do so. So if you have received it, I'd encourage you this season to remember it, to rehearse in it, to rejoice in it, and to show that type of grace to other people. And if you haven't received it yet, I'm gonna ask you to talk to someone, whether it's at one of our campuses, whether it's one of our leaders online, or whether it's in this building right now. And we have lots of people that would love to take you by the hand and introduce you to the grace that came down that first Christmas. But would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for looking at us with mercy and love all those years ago and deciding that you would leave heaven and bring us what we could never earn and what we could never find. 
So Father, I pray that for those of people listening that are trapped, maybe, maybe, maybe they've, kind of, they've kind, of, um, kind of danced into moralism or kind of wandered into relativism. Maybe just the past few months, would you get them back on track? And I pray that you would just change lives um, with your amazing grace as you've been doing for thousands of years. Would you do so even now? And it's in the beautiful and matchless name of Jesus, the word who became flesh, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Hope Podcast. We appreciate you joining us as we tackle issues facing our modern world from a biblical perspective. To make sure you don't miss a message, please take a moment and hit the subscribe button. Also, if you're new to Hope and want to check out what we're about and how to be a part of our community, go to our next steps at gethope.net slash next. Let us know your story because we'd love to connect with you.